the golden anniversary of the Fosbury flop. Welcome to the latest edition of Around the Rings Radio. I'm Ed Hula. Fifty years ago this month, a high jumper from the United States revolutionized the event with a unique style he had to fight hard to perfect, as well as win the acceptance from coaches and rulemakers. Dick Fosbury was a 21-year-old when he went to the Mexico City Olympics of 1968. This month marks the 50th anniversary of those Olympics, and the gold medal, which Fosbury won with his revolutionary high jump style, that propelled him headfirst over the bar with a push, a roll of the hips. The style was much different than the feet-first straddle style or scissor style that was practiced then by the world's high jumpers. Fosbury competed once at the Olympics, returning to Oregon where he finished his university degree in civil engineering. Ending up in Ketchum, Idaho, Fosbury owned his own civil engineering company and has conducted dozens and dozens of clinics and other public appearances through the years where he has inspired new generations of athletes. Dick Fosbury has written a book about his life, his challenges, and the triumph he felt with the success of the Fosbury flop. Wizard of Foz, Dick Fosbury's one-man high-jump revolution, is the title of the book written with Bob Welch. Dick Fosbury joins us by phone, where he's traveling to Oregon State University, his alma mater, for the unveiling of a statue commemorating this Olympian. Welcome to Around the Rings Radio, Dick Fosbury. Thank you, Ed. It's great to talk to you. And uh, yes, I am so excited to be honored uh, at Oregon State, my alma mater, where I really refined my high jump technique and that led to a, a victory, a gold medal 50 years ago at Mexico City this week. And you were a re- you're being honored for being a rebel. It w- wouldn't seem to be <laughs> that case 50 years ago. You had to fight a lot to get to where you are. Yeah, it's, well, you know that was the that was the times. It was a, a a revolutionary time in our culture, in our society. There were uh, protests and boycotts happening, not just in the United States, but around the world. A lot of student activity. Uh, we had revolution in our music. Uh, just. So many things were changing, and we had assassinations in 1968, so there was a a lot of turmoil and tension, and uh, I was very focused on uh, being a student in engineering at Oregon State, and and at the same time, I was really uh, improving with, with my performances in the high jump, and that was really a, uh, a breakout year for me. The the unconventionality of this jumping style seems to fit very well with the revolutionary times that you, I also were growing up in at that time in the 1960s. Thing, new things were being tried and you didn't hesitate when it came to figuring out a new way of going over the bar in high school. That's right, I, and and to be honest, <laughs> I you know I I wasn't really thinking of myself as being a revolutionary or or even being being aware that I was so different. But it, it 
I started with with a, the oldest style of high jumping, the scissors, and then I modified that, changed my body position in in order to jump higher. So I was simply reacting to raising the bar uh, two inches at a time, an inch at a time, and and my my intuition, my natural instinct helped me to to find a better way and and uh, a new way of jumping and I happen to be the only one using it uh, at, at that point but uh, you know who knew that after uh, winning gold in Mexico City that the the entire world kids everywhere would uh, adopt this technique because it looked fun it was certainly out of the norm for the jumping style and you were developing it, developing this as a teenager how are you able to prevail you're a youngster you don't know a lot about high jumping compared to maybe the coaches or at least the coaches who thought they knew more about high jumping than you did how were you able to prevail and and, and keep going with this Fosbury flop you, what you know ed it, it's it's just circumstantial because my my high school coach Dean Benson was a champion hurdler, and so I did high jump, and he got me to run the hurdles as well, and I really enjoyed that. But it in the high jump, I, I was using the scissors since grade school, <clears throat> and he explained to me the first day of practice that that simply wasn't going to work. I, I couldn't be competitive uh, each year if I stuck with that old style. So he worked to try to teach me the classic uh, Western roll, the straddle technique where the jumper goes over facing the barge and does kind of a belly roll. And I really worked hard on it for weeks and weeks, and and uh, I was horrible, uh, worst uh, worst guy on the team. I was usually the first one to go out in the in the meets, and so I was really threatened. And uh, when I I asked coach for permission to go back to the scissors, and he said, "Well, son, don't give up trying to learn." But, the, you know, it's your choice. And so he opened the door, and, and I took that opportunity to heart and took a risk and went back to the old style, and, and then I began to modernize it. And, and I think because Dean was, was a hurdler and not a high jumper, as long as I showed improvement... He would leave me alone, and he became the observer and, you know, made sure that I, I trained and worked out every week. Uh, but other than that, with my technique, he left me alone. And that, that was the, you know, that was the good news about uh, being a young athlete in the United States. I had that freedom. One interesting aspect of this technique that, might never have been able to develop was the discovery of an alternative to sawdust in the landing pit for I think the pole vault uh, it was brought over to the high jump as well and it made uh, made quite a difference this is one of the 
uh, things you learn about high jumping from from the book. But could you talk about the landing pit and what was the discovery that made it, I guess, safer, less risky for you to make these kinds of jumps? Yes, we had the the new technological improvement. <laughs> uh, we, it was it was new technology. It was changing our environment, and and it was first used in the '64 Olympics in Tokyo, where they they had chunks of foam that had a net over it to contain the foam, but it was a much softer and safer landing area than than the old sawdust and wood chips and certainly way better than sand. So <clears throat> once in once the high jumpers were we were starting to land in foam, it, we we were less concerned with our landing uh, and and could really focus on the takeoff and and getting over the bar. So the, that clearly helped uh, with with the evolution of my technique which took two years uh going through high school to really uh evolve and perfect it into its final form uh and and believe me the foam pits were uh were a great improvement and so by the time i went to oregon state uh as a freshman uh they they had the state championships there and oregon state had a foam pit uh, but I was still jumping into sawdust all the way through my senior year in college. There were some schools that that still didn't uh, ch- didn't pay to uh, ch- uh, uh, change over and and use those foam landing areas. And today, the porta pits and and uh, the, the uh, all of the safe landing areas, both in the pole vault and high jump, uh, have really in improved with performances and and made it safer we're talking with dick fosbury the olympian in the high jump from the 1968 olympics in mexico city the 50th anniversary of his triumph is this week uh you went on to university with the prospect of the 1968 olympics ahead was that a goal for you Actually, Ed, it it would it never was. I was one of those kids that <clears throat> that never had the Olympic dream. Uh, it it was I was I think probably an average athlete that knew and understood clearly that the Olympics was at such a high level that it it seemed unreachable to me. And uh, so in 1968. That was the first year I jumped indoors, uh, and so I started jumping at the end of December and, and all the way through January, February, March. I, I cleared seven feet for the first time and uh, continued to improve uh, through the, the track season and then into the summer. And that year, in 1968, we had two Olympic trials because the the Olympic Games in Mexico City were at high altitude, so we had a first trials in L.A. at the Coliseum in July, and then a final trials at Echo Summit at the same elevation as as Mexico City. And and they weren't so, sure whether they they weren't sure whether you could jump at this 
at the higher altitude? Yeah, it was a question mark how the athletes could adapt and and uh, perform at high altitude. And and so, 1968, as I gradually improved, I started to be asked. So, Dick, are you you know are you training for the Olympics and you're going to make the Olympic team? And and I you know all I could say is I sure don't know, but it you know it. Uh, it would be a great honor, and as as I I progressed through the year, I started to really uh, perform well, and I won the NC2As and and the first Olympic trials, and I, I knew then that I had a shot to make the team and and hopefully make the podium. And you squeaked into the team. You were selected for Mexico City to <laughs> be a member of the team, just just barely. I did. It, the competition at Echo Summit was so competitive, and and uh, in the high jump, uh, there were four of us that cleared seven two, and we were all we all had to make seven three, which none of us had ever made before. And I was uh, I really pulled it out and and made seven three on my first attempt. Uh, and the leader in the in the competition, John Hartfield, missed on his uh, third attempt, and and I had made the team even though I was in third place. Three of us had the leading jump in the world, uh, so I was on the team with Ed Carruthers and Ronaldo Brown, who was a 17-year-old high school kid, and I, we we were uh, we were aiming to compete against the Russians in Mexico City. And what was Mexico City like in 1968? Was this your first international trip? This was before track and field world championships were held. Did you have any international exposure before this? Well, minimally, the Russians came. They sent a small team on tour uh, during the indoor season. And so I did jump against their, their best high jumper, Valentin Gavrilov. Uh, and and I beat him in in one meet and and uh, but he beat me in another. So I I got a, at least a taste of it. But I had never competed against uh, the world against the world's best athletes. So Mexico City was a was a new experience for me, and it it really it changed my whole perspective when I started to observe athletes from all different countries, different races, different uh, languages, different food, different music. It, it was uh, really a, a, a transform, a transforming experience for me because I began to see that as humans, we, we all have the same desires and, and commonalities uh, regardless of what the politics are. And was there was there a lot of politics? Could you feel that that excitement, that politics amongst your your fellow athletes, wherever they were from? Well, it, not really. It was interesting because <laughs> it, you know it, I would go to the practice field, and and uh, Gavrilov happened to be out there, and 
we had a huge thunderstorm, so both of us jumped under the high jump tarp that was covering the, the pit, and we could barely speak each other's language, but we were talking about some of the issues that Mexico had and, and a lot of the protests and and the, the, the struggles of the people in Mexico, but we, we felt no animosity amongst each other. Uh, the, the only contra- confrontation actually that I had was with the East German coaches who insisted that my technique would fail and I would never succeed with it because the Western role, the straddle technique that was perfected by Valerie Brumel, the world record holder, would always dominate and and so that was the biggest contra- confrontation that I had. And there was a certain sense of satisfaction you must have felt when you uh, were standing on the uh, podium with that gold medal against that kind of yeah. resistance. Huh? Yeah, standing on the podium was was an amazing experience. That playing the national anthem, seeing our flag being raised, and. And afterwards, the crowd was cheering, and I celebrated, raised, raised my hand in the air and, and flashed the peace sign and V for victory and clenched my fist in solidarity with, with the, the black athletes. Uh, but I had a big smile on my face, and uh, I, all I could think about was the people back home uh, in Medford, Oregon, and Corvallis, that had encouraged me to keep going and and uh, and and play the game that I just love to to try to do. We are remembering 1968 and Mexico City Olympics with Dick Fosbury, one of the stars of those Olympics. Uh, of course, there are other events that we remember from Mexico City, not just your gold medal, Dick Fosbury. The Protest on the Podium by John Carlos and Tommy Smith. What was your reaction to this expression from them when it, when it happened? You, you know, my, my reaction was delayed because I, I was not out at the stadium. <clears throat> As I said, I was a young engineering student, no international experience and so I never went to watch any of the competitions I was totally focused on my own performance and and nervous about how I would do so I heard it you know there's a uh, a buzz that goes around the Olympic Village and and the next morning uh, the USA building was uh, blocked at the at the exit door when we were headed to breakfast with uh, 40 to 50 journalists that were trying to get a, a quote and a comment from anybody about their impression, which I I uh, slipped off to the side and avoided all of that. But the dynamics in the village changed from then on. And, uh, of course, Tommy and John had already left the the village and were heading home uh, and and so I didn't see them for months later. Were uh, afterwards, but I, you know it became apparent that that there was a lot of conflict and politics between the IOC and the USOC. So so my 
my reaction was delayed and and i i certainly became more aware of of its impact when i came back to the states after the games and i was invited to go to a lot of different places and make appearances and every cab driver would ask me about the black power salute and and I would explain, you know, this was not black power. This was the Olympic movement for human rights. It's not black or brown or yellow or red or white. It's for it's for human rights. And and you know, it was constant explaining and listening to people about their interpretation of of what it had happened. And it, it, obviously, it had an impact that's. That will last forever, I think. And it clearly had an influence on you. The whole experience of Mexico City, the protest influencing you moving forward with your life. It did, because even in Corvallis, we're we're a a rural area and and, uh, state college. and, And the very next year, my senior year in 1969, one of the black athletes had a conflict with the football coach when he, during the off season he grew a goatee because that's what a lot of the black students were uh were wearing at least the men and and uh the coach insisted that he be clean shaven and he refused to do that because it was not football season and it it kind of split the the campus for a while and and I stood up uh, because I had this exposure in Mexico City and and supported uh, supported Fred Milton and and his uh, expression to be a a student first and an athlete second and but it it was very divisive but I I learned what the <laughs> I learned what the pressures are and the emotions of taking a political position and uh, that that may be in conflict with uh, with uh, other members of the public. It, it was a challenging time. You were 21 in Mexico City. Uh, why not Munich in 72? You would still be a relatively young competitor at that stage. Yeah, you're right, Ed. Uh, and and what happened to me is is engineering is a very challenging curriculum. In 1968, as as I was headed upward, improving my performances to become ranked number one in the world, I I was starting to be ranked uh, one in in the bottom uh, ten thousand <laughs> for my for my studies in and so i i actually flunked out of engineering and in order to remain a student uh i i transferred into the school of sociology and took classes in philosophy and religion and then once i finished my my eligibility and track i transferred uh, reapplied for engineering and they put me in on probation but with one condition no jumping. And so I took a sabbatical. It took two years to get finished. And when I graduated in, in March of 72, I immediately tried to uh, jump and qualify for the trials. But I, I just, uh, I was not in jumping condition and, and I missed it by a couple inches. So I, 
I watched the trials in Eugene, and and it was okay. I I had gone beyond my expectations. I I was satisfied in sport, and and I knew that my career would be aimed toward being an engineering and uh, building communities. But you have still been involved with the Olympics and observer of the Olympics ever since then. You've conducted lots of clinics, given lots of talks to people all over the world. Uh, you've served a term as president of the World Olympians Association. Uh, from that perspective, what do you think about the Olympics today compared to the event that you competed in 50 years ago? Well, Ed, you know, it's clear that that the Olympics and sport reflects our culture and society. And so we we constantly see the great performances and improvements uh, in in performances by the athletes. And and that's very, very exciting. And at the same time, we face uh, strong challenges uh, with doping and uh, with with corruption, uh, usually influenced by uh, money, and and so ch- even in sport we face the same challenges that we have in in business and in politics, and uh, and so it's it's complex, it's very confusing, but. I'm a, a true advocate of of what sport can uh, can do and be a positive influence on people to to lead an active and healthy lifestyle. So uh, our culture has really changed. Our athletes can be performing and competing at the highest level at a much older age today. And so it's, a, a lot of it is very positive, and, and, of course, it's a constant struggle for the challenges that we have in our, in our society. Have the Olympics gotten too big, too hard to manage? Have issues such as doping just become too difficult to overcome and defeat? I, I don't believe so. I, uh, with regard to the Olympics being too big, the, the IOC has put a cap on the number of athletes. I, I'm particularly excited about the Youth Olympic Games because they experiment with the format of different sports, uh, having both uh, men and women uh, compete on the same teams and and so that's kind of a testing ground for innovation and creativity in sport. Uh, but you know, are the are the are the threats such as doping uh, 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 too strong? I don't believe so. I I think that we can defeat this. It's it takes an effort with education with the younger athletes and with parents to not be persuaded because all of us understand that, that when a person cheats in order to advance or, or to be a winner, they know in their heart that it's not an honest victory and, and it's uh, the victory is colored. So it's, it's simply not worth it, but it's, we need to, 
invest in our resources and in science, and, and I think uh, we're on the right track to do that with the blood passport and and being able to test the athletes uh, years later to see if they were tempted or their their advisors or coach uh, enabled them to try to cheat. And so I'm still an optimist, uh, but it's it's something we can't just assume is all going to work out. Uh, there's changing interest in sport, maybe not as much interest in track and field these days as there might be in more modern pursuits that are coming to the Olympics, such as skateboarding or, or, or surfing. Uh, how do you feel about these these new events coming to the Olympic program? Well, you know, in my life, I'm fortunate. I live in a mountain resort, and and so I've seen skiing evolve and change from classic Nordic skiing to skate skiing, uh, from alpine skiing to snowboarding, uh, rollerblading. We we have a, a constant evolution in playing games, and so I think it's a natural outgrowth. <clears throat> the you know the surfing and and the other sports that are that are new uh even even climbing uh it at our YMCA we have a climbing wall that attracts kids and and uh it, people with disabilities to challenge themselves and and practice things to to test themselves to see how good they can become. So I'm, I'm actually very open-minded uh, about that, and, and I think track and field will, will remain the number one sport in, in the summer games. And at the same time, I think that, that the federations will look at uh, uh, evolving what games we play and what competitions, because I'd I know even in in the winter games to to have a cross country race uh, or uh, a medley race uh, could be a, a very interesting sport and and uh, attract fans. So I'm open minded about that. I kind of like it. Uh, Dick Fosbury, you've written a book about your your life, your career, your your triumphs in the high jump pit. Uh, was it fun to write? Uh, <laughs> or was it? it, yes, or, or, it, it could go either <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah, and it you know it it was fun, and and at the same time it was work. the The way that Bob Welch works, he he really has the he's learned in his profession as a as a sports writer to to do the research he's he's had the resources to be able to do that working for a newspaper and and he was able to fill in some blanks and and actually correct my memory a couple times uh but i i had preserved a lot of of uh of my history you know my my parents had scrapbooks and and so it it was really a, an interesting project to to dig in and and uh dig out the the real story and the context and the environment uh that that was happening 
uh, when we were uh, when we were writing the book. So it, it was a challenge, but it, it was uh, it was very uh, it was very joyful, and and I'm really pleased with the result. It's it's just such a good read. I think it's Bob's finest writing. And I really enjoyed going through it as well. It is a wonderful snapshot of those times, and uh, not to, not not to be the spoiler or anything, but he does win the gold medal in the end of the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Ed. Very nice compliment. I appreciate it so much. Well, happy anniversary, happy fiftieth anniversary for you, Dick Fosbury. Yeah, my goodness, you know, it's, I'm I'm so happy to be to still be vertical and mobile and and uh, traveling the country and and hopefully inspiring and motivating others to challenge themselves and and never quit, even when you miss, you fail, you lose. If you love what you're doing, to carry on and and persevere because you'll. You'll never know what your limits are. So I appreciate talking to you today, Ed. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Dick Fosbury has been our guest on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. I'm Ed Hula. Thanks for joining us on this edition. For 25 years, your best source of news about the Olympics has been AroundTheRings.com.